Good afternoon once again, ladies and gentlemen. If I could have your attention, please. From the One King West Hotel in downtown Toronto, welcome to the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you who are just joining us through either our webcast or podcast or live on TV, welcome to the meeting. Before our distinguished speakers are introduced today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our head table guests. I would ask that each of our head table guests rise as their name is called. Typically, we ask the audience to refrain from applauding, but nobody ever listens, so clap as much as you want. It's more fun this way. So first off, Mr. Christopher Wine, President of Great Golf Residential. Next is Ms. Jennifer Keysmat, Chief Planner and Executive Director at the City of Toronto. Mr. Hunter Milbourne, President of Milbourne Real Estate Incorporated. Mr. Jason Lester, Vice Chair of Development at Dream. Dr. Gordon McIver, Communications and Public Relations Consultant and a past president of the Empire Club of Canada. Ms. Jane Pepino, a partner at Airden Burles LLP. Ms. Antoinette Tumilo, Executive Vice President of Real Estate Management Services at Colliers International and a director at the Empire Club of Canada. Mr. Daniel Moranovich, Senior Vice President of Land and Housing at DREAM. Beside him is Ms. Amanda Milbourne, Ireland, Chief Operating Officer of Milbourne Real Estate. And once again, my name is Paul Fogelin. My day job, I'm the Vice President of the Ontario Retirement Communities Association and your President for the Empire Club of Canada this season. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table. Former Secretary General to the United Nations, Mr. Ban Ki-moon, had this to say about the future of cities. Quote, building sustainable cities and a sustainable future will need open dialogue among all branches of national, regional, and local government. It will also need the engagement of all stakeholders, including the private sector and civil society. End quote. The Secretary-General recognized that cities are being built in a significantly different way than they were even a generation ago. Both planners and developers spend more time thinking about macro issues, such as climate change, traffic congestion, and energy conservation. Each of these issues requires enormous amounts of study and thought if the final product is to be progressive and economically feasible. It often demands more cooperation between cities and the development community. Well, today we are tremendously privileged to be joined by two global leaders in the art of modern city building. One, an award-winning North American developer, and the other, one of the continent's most respected and well-known planners. Together, they will discuss what it takes to build a great city in 2017 and how new approaches to city building are literally changing the way that urban Canadians live, work, and play. Christopher J. Wine is the president of Great Golf. He leads the senior executive management team for all residential community, housing, high-rise development initiatives at Great Golf, including construction and property management. 
With more than 20 years of senior leadership in the design and development industries, his work focuses on utilizing new technologies, sustainable eco-friendly building solutions, and engineering ingenuity in the industry. Chris has spoken at industry conferences all around the world, in Shanghai, Dubai, New York, Dallas, and all across Canada. Under his leadership, Great Golf has been recognized as 2016's Home Builder of the Year, as well as receiving many top community and high-rise development awards. Jennifer Keysmat is Chief Planner of the City of Toronto. In this role, Jennifer is committed to creating places where people flourish. Over the past decade, Jennifer has been repeatedly recognized by the Canadian Institute of Planners for her innovative work in Canadian municipalities. Most recently, Jennifer was named as one of the most influential people in Toronto by Toronto Life magazine and one of the most powerful people in Canada by Maclean's. Jennifer is the 2016 recipient of the President's Award of Excellence from the Canadian Institute of Planners. Her practice is characterized by an emphasis on collaborations across sectors and broad engagement with municipal staff, councils, developers, and residents' associations. And finally, I'd like to welcome our moderator for today, which will be our past president, Dr. Gordon McIver. Gordon McIver has a wealth of experience in the public real estate world and will lead our conversation today. So would the three of you please join me on stage? Well, thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome. Uh, it's wonderful to have you two together again. And I say again because I don't know if anyone in the room had the chance to see uh, uh, this particular uh, panel on the agenda with Steve Pakin a couple of weeks ago. And I know the topic you addressed wasn't specifically about building cities in the 21st century and how it's changed, but I know you certainly got into it during that conversation. So let's, let's get you going. And I want to just start off, and I'm going to launch a couple of questions to get the conversation going, and then I'll kind of step back unless you get quiet, in which case I'll, I'll uh, throw in a question. And then at the end, ladies and gentlemen, we'll, we'll take uh, questions from the audience. So if you do have a question at the end, there's going to be a roving mic. Uh, I think Taylor has it. There we go. And so just uh, put your hand up, and she will bring the mic over to you at the end of our session today. So let's, let's get underway. Obviously, uh, I think everybody in the room probably has a base understanding of how planning, municipal planning has changed since, you know, Baron Haussmann did his grand redesign for Paris uh, well over a century ago. I'm not sure everybody in the room would have a really great understanding of how city planning has changed in a generation, other than the very obvious IT elements. Uh, the fact that we're, we're more conscious about environmental factors today, the basic things that we all read in the media. But if I asked you as an opening sort of volley to describe what constitutes the major changes in the past generation to the way that we are building cities in Canada and around the world today. So, uh, Jennifer, do you want to start us off? Sure. That's a massive question. That's like a doctorate thesis. <laughs> Uh, but, but it's answerable, and for a very simple reason. You can capture the transition in planning in two key characters uh, in uh, 21st century city building, and that's Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs. And Robert Moses was about uh, big, sweeping revitalization plans, about big gestures, massive infrastructure investments, 
Of course, he ruled New York uh, in the 60s, and his nemesis was Jane Jacobs, who in fact responded very negatively. Uh, at first, she was a fan because he was focused on revitalization as opposed to the suburbs. But uh, Jane Jacobs introduced the idea of really of place, that there's something interesting and unique in the granularity that emerges when people and diversity are prioritized in placemaking. And she brought that principle to city building. And I really think those two key ideas in juxtaposition, and I would actually argue that the central values of those two philosophies are still bumping up against each other in cities around the world, including in our own, where we are struggling, we continue to struggle with both. One focuses on planning around the car, and the other focuses on planning around people. One focuses on large infrastructure. The other focuses on a much smaller, fine grain understanding of the city. And I think that really captures the two big ideas in city building that are playing out in our generation and that are really in, in a deep fundamental conflict. Yeah, I, I would concur with Jennifer. I think the challenge we have coming at it from a developer's perspective is, is the, the world moves too fast these days. And what I mean by that is uh, mainly to do with politics. So between communication technology and politics, we are now basically the soundbite generation. And every politician, uh, and not to pick on any politicians that are in the room, but you need to make your mark fast. You need to do something that is extremely, uh, you know, almost populist in nature. Uh, and the challenge is cities don't build fast. If you look at the great cities of the world, most of them are, you know, in many cases, well over 500 years old. So we look at the great capitals of Europe, et cetera, and we think these are wonderful cities. We love Paris and we love Rome and so on. Why can't Toronto be that way? Well, 500 years ago, 300 years ago, even 100 years ago, the politicians were trying to do things that would leave great legacies and that would, would be generational moves. I think today, everybody's trying to do something that will get them through the next three years or the next four-year term. And I'm not blaming the mayor or city council. I'm saying this is happening all over the place. So it's happening at a federal level. It's happening at a provincial level. We're seeing it play out right now in the United States of America with you know, Donald, the populist Trump. So you know, it's a real challenge because you don't put in infrastructure, subway systems, plan educational programs, you know, hospitals, communities. You don't get a sense of place in a four-year term. You have to do that over 25 years and over 30 years and so on. The other thing I think that is a major concern is I actually think we're going to have a lot more change in the next 25 years than we had in the last 25 years. The last 25 years and really the last 50 years was dominated, and Jennifer mentioned it, by the automobile. And the changes is going to happen in transportation, and the changes is going to happen with the sharing economy and individuals, you know, owning cars and believing that a two-car garage is the sort of Canadian dream. That I think is changing absolutely at light speed. And I think what's going to happen over the next 25 years, and our challenge, both as a private industry and also as public policy, is to figure out where cities are going, and more importantly, where the demographics are headed, uh, and what's happening with with even the way the family unit comes together. Um, and I think that's what we should be looking at as opposed to focusing too much on the past. Well, you know, I'll, I'll pick up on that because uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head. One of the tensions that you, we have in planning is that we're actually trying to look into the very long term, plan infrastructure for 20, 30, 40, 100 years. 
uh, when change is happening so quickly, how do you do that? How do you really understand what do we, you know, apparently most of the jobs that our children are going to have don't even exist yet. So how can we even begin to think about what workspaces are going to look like and where people are, where people are going to live? So it presents a fundamental challenge and then when you overlay that with a political pressure to do something now, it creates, I think, a hotbed of risk. Absolutely. And I think the only response to that can be to go back to our timeless principles of good planning and good design, principles that have stood the test of time, and ensure that all of our decision-making continues to be rooted in those timeless principles of great placemaking, which, you know, no surprise, Jane Jacobs actually articulated very well. And I'll give you a really specific example, because people say to me all the time, oh, are you planning for autonomous vehicles? Autonomous vehicles are going to transform our city which I think is just this incredible misunderstanding as to how technologies and tools work in a city. Because technologies and tools are an overlay. Cars don't change the city. Autonomous vehicles don't change the city. Our planning policies need to come first, and autonomous vehicles need to then fit within our vision of the kind of city that we're trying to create. So you've probably heard it, people saying, autonomous vehicles are going to result in more sprawl. Well, only if we decide to plan for more sprawl, only if that's how we decide to plan for more cars, then absolutely they will ruin our cities, much like we've ruined many of our North American cities by planning highways and freeways and for the car today. The inverse is if we say, well, wait a minute, what's the vision that we have of our city? Well, we know we want our cities to be green and sustainable. We know that the best way to do that is to make them walkable, to ensure that the first choice for getting to work or recreation is, in fact, to walk or to take a short cycling trip or to take transit. If we stick with those principles, then we begin to see autonomous vehicles as something that can overlay and contribute to that vision. And the biggest opportunity I see is that it means we'll need a lot less parking. Absolutely. Because we won't be parking cars for 98% of the time. Those cars will continue to function. Yeah, so, so can you give me relief on all my parking? For <laughs> my, the, the current 10 towers that I have under development? The, uh, you know, the interesting thing is I think we're, we're quite obsessed with transportation, and we're obsessed with how transportation has... Technology has changed transportation, but we're actually missing the, the big change in technology because it really isn't the transportation idea. Why is transportation such a big deal and why have we always obsessed over transportation? Because for the last 100 years, for the last 300 years, we've had to transport ourselves to get to work. We've had to transport ourselves to educate. We've had to transport ourselves to get healthcare. We've had to transport ourselves to play, to live, etc. What technology has unlocked is not the idea of autonomous cars. That's just more of you know, a nice-to-have, a symptom. What technology has really unlocked is it allows all of us to do anything we want, at any time we want, anywhere we want. And that's truly what's going to revolutionize the cities. And we're seeing it already. As a private developer, we're seeing that the needs of office have changed dramatically. The needs of education have changed dramatically. I sit on one of the, the hospital boards, North York. I have to give a shout-out because they're in the audience. Uh, the needs of hospitals and healthcare is changing. Now we have home care. You don't go to the hospital, the hospital comes to you. You don't go to school, the school comes to you. You don't go to work, you stay, you sit in Starbucks and you work from there. So that's where we really have to think about, you know, the, the big changes in planning. The big changes in planning is that people are able going to are going to be able to accomplish more, do more, and have much broader, more fulfilling lives in a much smaller radius. 
So what does that do? Well, that means more people are going to come together. So that's why cities are expanding quickly. That's why densities are growing, because people now can actually live within two or three city blocks, and they can accomplish anything they want. And the amazing thing is they all want to live together. They actually, technology has brought us more together than apart. So that's why there's this massive migration in the world. And it's happening all over the world, where cities are getting bigger and stronger, and the rural areas are getting weaker and less populated. And that's going to continue to trend that way. So I think obsessing over things like autonomous vehicles and so on is actually the wrong, it's, it's sort of looking at the shiny penny. And what we really need to think about is how do we design cities and how do we design buildings and how do we have buildings interact with one another where people can accomplish you know, really a multitude of tasks and where they truly, you know, we talk about multitasking, we have to build buildings that allow for multitasking. And one of the challenges we have with current planning principles and more so current approval process is that we're still very stuck in, well, no, an office kind of has to look like this and a school kind of has to look like this and a residential building has to look like this and they all have different parking ratios and they all have different rules and regulations and try not to mix too many of them together because we don't really like that because it's tough for us to get our heads around. And I think that that's where great leaps and bounds can be made because... We talk sometimes buzzwords in, in the planning world, in the architecture world, in the development world, mixed use, mixed use, mixed use. We really don't understand. We're at the very early stages of what true mixed use development will look like. And that's the future of our city and other cities is to really start to understand how we're going to allow people the flexibility to do whatever they want to do within a very small footprint as opposed to still this idea, go there to work, go there to shop go there to eat, et cetera. And Jennifer, obviously, you, you two get along very well. I saw no, we don't like video. each other at all. <laughs> <laughs> but, but everybody, and everybody in this room probably understands there's a great advantage in the private sector and government having a common vision, respecting the priorities of the other side, so to speak. I hate that word, but the other part of the, of the equation. But, you know, there was a period, and I sat next to, I had the honor of sitting next to, uh, to Jane Papino at lunch, and, and she will remember, as, as I do well, that there was a period where you know, we were taking Jack Layton to the OMB every week, right, in the private sector, because he was trying to stop every development. Clearly, that was a period in our history, our city's history, where the private sector and the city did not have a shared vision in any way. They were, and, and some people would submit that's still, that's still out there very much. So my question to you both is, how important is your relationship? And, and, and finding common ground so that you could actually work together you have a profit yeah, motive? I, I think it's incredibly important. Like, like, we pride ourselves on trying to avoid the OMB process as much as possible. So as, as Great Gulf considers themselves a city builder, we operate in 22 cities across North America, and we believe that we have to partner with the cities, we need to partner with the administration, we need to partner with politicians, and we need to work together to build a better city. By working as adversaries, it makes no sense. Um, I think the, the idea that everything's a fight uh, is, is sort of a, an old-fashioned kind of idea. And that doesn't mean you... I'm not advocating we should get rid of the OMB or that body shouldn't exist because you always need, you know, adjudication and you need to be able to resolve problems. But I think as, as a private business person and as a developer, I can make the conscious choice and the conscious effort amongst myself and my staff to say, let's work on compromise. Let's work on the overall net benefits. And I think the, the real solution of working with the city is it's less about lawyering up or figuring out how you're going to get into a fight. And it's more about having a better understanding of how your development, your building, your master plan community can have a net benefit 
for the, for the overall city of Toronto or, the, or whatever community you're working in. And if we can demonstrate that net benefit and demonstrate that we're doing things that will help with city building, I've never found the city, nor Jennifer personally, to be difficult to work with. Where I think the difficulty comes is sometimes it's a lack of, of uh, it's a translation. You know, if I'm business, 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 and she's planning, 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 and we're talking a different language, then you can start to get into, uh, you know, a headbutting situation. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that we as developers need to think more about how we build the city. And by the way, it also makes us more profitable. Like I honestly believe by compromising and by working together and by not being, you know, uh, fighting constantly, we actually make more money. So I think it's a win-win. Well, you know, I'll give a couple, a, a couple of pieces to respond to that. Uh, you know, the relationship's essential. When I started in this job, uh, I did a little a roadshow. I had a PowerPoint presentation that I did that I talked about um, a shared vision for the city and our shared interests. And I think anytime you begin with shared interests in a conversation, uh, you can get to a great outcome. And so I had a negotiation last week with a developer who's working on a very big project. We really disagreed as to how to deliver this project. And at, at one moment in the conversation, I stopped and said, let's hold back a minute and go, what, what are we trying to achieve here? We both want an exceptional project that's going to be precedent setting and is going to redefine the city. And we both went back to, that's right, let's remember what we both want out of this. How you get there is always tricky. It's always tricky because you're negotiating a whole variety of different interests that are, that are very real. So one of the reasons I started in my first year as chief planner, spending so much time talking about that shared interest, I talked about a spectacular public realm. I talked about how qual high quality urban design. Uh, I talked about stable employment and thriving employment, places where people had housing options and housing choices. You can rent in high quality rental and you can own in a variety of different housing types. The reason I did that was to, in fact, identify and begin as our starting place our shared interest and our vision. Because if you're having a conversation about something very detailed on a project and you don't know what you both want out of it, you are going to be very unhappy and very stuck. I would say that uh, I agree with most of what you've said, and I would put you in this category, Chris, which is that as a city builder, and you've said that outright many times yourselves, this breaks down, of course, when you don't have a shared vision. When you have a developer who is not a city builder, who actually doesn't really care about the future of the city, but just cares about making a profit. Uh, and we have some of those too. Uh, and those are the ones that, of course, hate us the most because we have a fundamentally different vision of what we're trying to do. And I was on a panel last week and there was a developer who said, you know, this is ridiculous. We need more housing in the city. You should just put two extra stories on everything. To which I said, okay, and if that shadows a school park, is that okay? Because those are actually the kinds of things we think about in creating a livable city. We're actually trying to mitigate the amount that we shadow parks, particularly a school park during lunchtime. We want the sun to be on that park. We want to ensure that this is going to be, we're not compromising a short-term objective for a very long-term objective, in part because we don't think we need to be shadowing school parks. There's tons of areas where we need development in this city where we don't yet have it. So that's kind of our moderating role on the on the other side of the fence is protecting that longer longer term interest against a very short term interest when we are collaborating uh, and I would say we have many many great developers in the city and the evidence of that is all around you in the city 
we in fact uh, see ourselves as collaborators and as city builders. And I think the old model was to see ourselves as regulators. Correct. You yeah. come to us, you tell us what you want to do, and we're going to say, mm, yes, no, yes, no. That was that Jack Layton era that you're talking about. Part of what I've been seeking to introduce with my team over the past five years is we are partners, we're collaborators, we're city builders, we're forward thinking. And I'm very proud to say that 98% of the recommendations for development applications, sorry, 96% that we bring forward to, recommend, to city council as a recommendation are approved by city council. That's 96%. Those are not appealed at the OMB. So there's this big narrative, and it is a little bit, you know, the OMB is the boogeyman in the room. There's this big narrative that the OMB is planning the city. Uh, well, for development applications, and there's two pots here. One is proactive planning policy, and that's a whole other baby. But when it comes to development applications, 96% of the recommendations coming forward by, by city planning are supported, and 4% of those applications are actually going on and being appealed at the Ontario Municipal Board. And I think that's a reflection of this big shift that's happened where there are many developers, some of whom are new to this city, like West Bank, who are literally sitting down in their very first meeting and saying, we're not interested in going to the OMB. We want to work with you. Well, we want to work with you. We want to collaborate to do great city Absolutely. I think, I think the challenge, just to throw some challenges up at, at you know, our thoughts, yes, we all want to get there, and yes, that's the direction we need to head, but one of the things that, that we then go back to our frustrations um, as a developer and as a development community is similar to what I said about politics. I think also within the city administration, and this isn't directed directly at you, Jennifer, but it's just in general how we put our cities together is we've, we've become very departmentalized in the way our governments work, and especially with respect to our municipal governments. So what ends up happening is you have a lot of special interest groups within the municipality. So parks has a very special interest. Um, you know, the, the uh, transportation has a very special interest. You know, the, even the development planners have a, have a special interest. And what ends up happening is you get too many people around the table that really only care about their piece of the pie, and no one can kind of adjudicate that global good. And I'm not saying that the OMB necessarily is the, is the venue for it, but I think in order to progress, because part of this conversation is about how can we make the city better, how can we improve our cities in the 21st century, is really we need to start thinking about administratively how we judge what is in the net benefit and how we don't get into a situation where, because I sit in too many meetings at City Hall where I literally have the conversation where half the room, and they all work for City Hall, says, Chris, this is great, we love the development, and the other half of the room says, oh, yeah, but from my perspective, which is very narrow because I'm only worried about traffic, I don't actually like the development. So I don't think you should do it. I don't think we should you know, have this mixed use come in or whatever because there's this one little interest that's a key thing. And I'm not picking on transportation because every <laughs> meeting it changes. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's where... I'm, I don't think it's an immediate fix, but I think we have to look at and think about mm -hmm. how we measure mm -hmm. um, you know, projects and how we sort of have this level of compromise. Because sometimes we have to compromise on transportation. Sometimes we have to compromise on parks. Sometimes we have to compromise on you know, uses, on heritage. Heritage is a big issue in the city right now. Most of the cities we operate in around the world or around North America uh, have you know, better heritage and laxer rules. So they're able to figure out that we don't have to protect everything. We have to protect the stuff that's actually significantly important. And there's other stuff that the benefit of the city is greater than protecting 
you know, just an old warehouse that has no historical value, but just happens to be old. Because, you know, as, as my uh, parents would say, who used to be in the antique business, just because it's old doesn't mean it's an antique. So this is true. Not everything old is worth saving. So I want to pick up on this idea because I think what you're talking about is a microcosm of, of exactly what I've been talking about in terms of this notion of a shared vision. You have that exact same dynamic at the city where you need city departments to have the same, that, that same shared vision. And uh, I will agree with you, we're far from where we need to be, but I do think we're making really big strides. And I'll give you an example. On Saturday morning, I was on a panel with my colleagues, Barbara Gray, who is the new general manager of transportation services, and Jamie Romoff, who is the GM of Parks, Forestry, and Recreation, as well as Mike Williams, who's the head of economic development at the city. We were all on a panel together. This is new. Like, this didn't happen 10 years ago. This is very new. We were all on the panel together. City planning is leading a process called TO Core. Mm -hmm. And TO Core is about planning the downtown in a comprehensive way and creating that shared vision for the downtown. So importantly, it's about water infrastructure. It's about ensuring that with our colleagues in water, we're on the same page. It's about urban trees and street trees and ensuring we're on the same page. And it is about creating a secondary plan for the downtown that brings together all of the different interests under the banner of one vision for the kind of livable downtown that we want to create. We have 128 policy proposals that are in draft form today and what's so interesting about that project is that it has been fundamentally interdisciplinary and a weird thing happened. So we've been at this for about three years. A weird thing happened on the panel, which was as my colleagues in transportation services, as Barbara Gray was speaking, I was nodding and going, yep, that's exactly it. That's exactly what we need to do. She was talking about complete streets and recognizing that driving downtown will be slow because we want to move people in the best way possible, which means we need to focus on better sidewalks, better transit, and, and better cycling infrastructure. And of course, I was nodding my head yes, because this has been in our official plan for 10 years now, but it's something we frequently fight with transportation services about when they're trying to widen the streets and we're trying to widen the sidewalks. But here we were on the panel, I was nodding. We, the, the shared vision, the shared interest, same with Janie Romoff. Rail Deck Park, is an outcome of the planning process of TO Core. And interesting, was led by city planning. But it's parks planning, which is actually something that parks does. But in fact, this was planning, kind of being at the edge, pushing the conversation. Well, now parks couldn't be more excited about Rail Deck Park. And so there's now a real culture shift, I would argue, in parks about being proactive about identifying lands to acquire in our really high-density areas for new park space. That is emerging out of one specific, very tangible process. I don't disagree. I think we have a very long way to go, and these culture changes do take a long time. But we have a series of very strategic exercises underway that are all about recognizing the city in its complexity, because yep. that's really what this is about. These projects are much more complex than they ever were before. Absolutely. So Rail Deck Park, love the topic. Let's talk about it really briefly. I'm a big supporter, and I, you know, I hope it goes through. The challenge we still have is I can't be building towers downtown and be a big supporter of Rail Deck Park and be told every time I go in for an application, oh, yeah, but we'd really like a pocket park of 2,000 feet on your development site. It's like you don't get both. You don't get both in New York. You don't get both anywhere else. Like 
You want Central Park? But you do get no, both no, in New no, York. You You've got a ton of pocket no, parks no. in New York. You don't. You don't. You <laughs> I'm going to get the data on that don't. for you. You, you don't, don't just have Mad- Central Park. Madison Park is not a pocket park. <laughs> Bryant Park is not a park park. You have very strategically designed parks. But this idea, and parks is all over it these days, that every site that's over 25,000 feet, you have to dedicate, you, you should, they don't want the, the money anymore. I'm fine to give them the money. Give you the money, do something for the benefit of the whole city. Putting a 2,500 or 3,000 foot park on the base of every um, high rise is not for the benefit of the city. That's for, I don't know what that's for. Similar to the public art, um, you know, policy. Can I just, I, no, let, just before you go to public okay. art, just on that, on that piece, the asking for a pocket park on every site is an outcome of not having a larger vision of, of where course. the parks are going but, to go. But now we so, have a bit of a vision. Well, not a bit of a so vision. We catch up we're, so we're creating a public, um, public parks and public realm master plan as part of TO Core, the anchor of which is Rail Deck Park. Park. But that will... So this is where you have to have that bigger vision in order to drive the specific decision. So in the absence of that bigger vision... Every single project that comes forward, you're right. Staff are going. We should get a. We should get a park. We should get a park. Now we. Now we will have. It's not complete yet. It's under development right now. But we will have that larger parks and public realm master plan. So when a specific application comes forward, we can say, okay, this is how this site fits into the vision of the larger network. And when you're buying a site, you can look at in advance and say, oh, okay, the city's identified this as being a key part of of the infrastructure. Absolutely. And, and then you have to overlay that with transportation and others, because the other thing too is, if you're gonna create Rail Deck Park, then create ways that people can connect to that park. So this is again where we have this sort of disjointed vision at times, and I'm not blaming anyone, I'm just suggesting that the more we can come together, because there's no point in building a major central park over a rail yard and then not thinking about, okay, but how is the city gonna access that park? Because that's the other problem you get into is, well, we're building on the east side of the city and our residents are never gonna make it over Rail Deck Park because there's no easy way to get there and they're not gonna drive because there's no parking and so on and so forth. So that's really just for the King West area and it doesn't benefit me. Then you overlay it's that like the with- Take the relief line, yeah, it'll but, take smart track. But it's not built yet. But then you overlay that with the politicians saying, well, my ward, I care about this, that ward, I care about that. So there's, I'm not suggesting that our city's broken by any stretch, and I think our city's getting better all the time, and I think you're part of making the city better, and you know I'm a big supporter, but I think two things need to change. One, the faster we can kind of pull people together and have grander visions, the better, and then at the same time, while you're putting together the grand visions, we need to somehow have an interim period where we say, you know what, we have a vision, we know where we're headed, it takes several years to put together something like T.O. Gore. Don't keep asking for the pocket parks at the same time. Like you, because you can't wait until, well, we're just going to keep this policy until this new policy comes. We need to have transitions. Because this is why you get pushback. And this is why the private sector does fight back at times. Because they're trying to figure out, okay, is it, you know, are we funding transit? Or are we funding parks? Or are we funding art? What is it that we're doing? Because we're willing to fund. We want the city to be better. But we can't be death by a thousand cuts. And I think that that's where we want to be careful. I'm more, the same as public art. I've, I've mentioned this many times. I would much rather provide the same cash. It's not the cash. I'm more than thrilled to have public art. But instead of putting up, you know, sort of mediocre art on every street corner that's in front of a, a new condo tower being built, why don't we all contribute to a grander vision and create a true sense of place and create something spectacular that, you know, is, is you know, a place like the Nasher Art Gallery, like the entire arts district they did in downtown Dallas. Dallas is way behind the city in Toronto as far as progressive thinking and city building, but they've got an amazing deck park and they've got an amazing public arts, um, you know, complex next to that deck park. 
but it's because they took a whole bunch of money and consolidated together instead of sort of death by a thousand. So times. Jennifer and <clears throat> Chris, we're going to go to hear some voices oh, from our audience. <laughs> but before we do, I, I just wanted to lob one at least controversial yes. question towards you. I think most visitors to, to Toronto, when you go to Main Street and you talk to people, not in the industry, not people that are in the real estate business or, or work for the city of Toronto, but most people would say, we do a pretty darn good job in Toronto with parks. And we have some lovely neighborhoods. Everybody talks about the richness of our neighborhoods. The criticism, though, that you hear from, I, I always call it Mr. and Mrs. Smith, right, the uh, illusionary Mr. and Mrs. Smith, that you always hear about Toronto is, has got more to do with architecture. When you talk to people about the architecture of the new buildings going up, and the word boring comes forward a lot, right? And they always go, you know, there's the Marilyn Monroe in Mississauga, which everybody talks about because that was original. Um, but in Toronto, we really don't have a lot of buildings that look totally different and unique to any other buildings. Is that, is that something that you would agree with, that we still have work to do on? Or is that a perception which is unmerited? I, I, I think it's... it's there's a bit of both. So I think there is some, so I think there's definitely merit that, that for the amount, I think it's more of a quantity thing, for the amount of development activity we have in this city, which is unprecedented in North America, like really for the last decade, we've had an unbelievable amount of development. And when you think of that volume of development, the amount of architecturally striking buildings is relatively few and far between. Um, but why is that? So it's, you know, it's, it's easy to criticize, but what we really should be doing is looking at, okay, but what's causing that issue? And I think there's a couple of things. One is, even though we have this dramatically, um, you know, large development industry and we have so much volume, our uh, economics are still very low. Like, we forget that on a global perspective, we're one of the cheapest cities as far as the top 40 global cities. And there isn't a ton of money to put into the construction of these buildings. Like in New York, when you have buildings that are going up that are three, four, five, seven thousand dollars a square foot, and the average buildings in Toronto are five, six, seven hundred dollars a square foot, there's only so much you can spend on architecture. The second issue we have is even if you do bring in the world-class architects, we do struggle a little bit with the trade industry, and it's it's no offense to them, it's that these buildings aren't difficult, or are very difficult to build. So we're doing a Moisha Safti building down at the waterfront, Moaned. We think it's a gorgeous building. The economics are very tough on it, but more importantly, the trades are struggling to understand his level of detail. And we don't necessarily have the, the, the local trade base that can handle some of these very architecturally complex items. And then lastly, we also deal in an extremely difficult climate. Um, and we're building very tall buildings in this climate, and some of the stuff you see are in warmer cities, Asian cities, and so on, where they don't have to deal with some of the dramatic hot and cold you know, temperature swings that we have to deal with. So there's a lot that goes into Canadian development, and I think I'm always very annoyed when people come to a great city. I think it's the best city in the world, Toronto, and I travel everywhere, and then start picking apart our architecture, because I do think there's some beautiful buildings here. Jennifer, what's your take? Well, I would say that um, there's nothing more, and maybe I'm just a true blue Torontonian, but there's nothing... Um, more offensive or less appealing to me than a city where all the buildings are competing with each other. And you think of Dubai, right? It's just, uh, it's at, it, not only is it painful to look at in a postcard, but it's a terrible experience at the street level. And one of the things that we've done really well, and one of our urban designers is on the Council for Tall Buildings, the International Council for Tall Buildings, precisely because we have done it very well, is we've figured out how, and we've learned a lot from Vancouver, how buildings should hit the ground. Because we know how buildings hit the ground is a really important part Absolutely. of everyday life. 
When you have a lot of tall buildings, it's a worst case scenario if they're all very, very distinct because then they're competing with each other and it actually, it's too intense, it's too difficult to absorb in a complex urban environment. So we're very concerned with having high quality buildings, buildings that are of their time, buildings that are green, ideally buildings that are beautiful, I would actually make innovation the last word from an architectural perspective. The last thing you want are, is a city of buildings that are screaming at you. So we do have a lot of background buildings, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think our buildings are getting better and better and better, as they are in every city. If you look at New York, New York has a lot of disastrously ugly buildings. If you go with a critical eye and walk around Manhattan, it's absolutely shocking uh, how much really frightening architecture there is in New York City. It's everywhere. But it doesn't matter, because New York's about the street. It's all about the street. It's all about the lived experience. So we're concerned about ensuring that on landmark sites, the waterfront is a good place where you have views and vistas. On landmark sites, we want landmark buildings. But on background sites, we want background buildings. And it's important to keep that straight or you do end up with something that is quite overwhelming, uh, I think, in the urban environment. Equality actually comes first. I think our, the big conversation we need to be having is about, it is about quality and it's about sustainability because we're starting to fall behind in terms of how green our buildings are in this city. Well, the problem with this lunch is we're just going to wet the interest of everybody. Yeah. <laughs> we, could, we could literally go all day. But let's, let's get a couple of questions from the audience. Um, and I think uh, the microphone is right there. So if you have a question, just put up your hand and Taylor will bring the microphone over. Don't all jump at once. <laughs> there we go. Antoinette Tamilo. Head table, but I've got a question. Uh, you talked about the waterfront development. I'm just curious how you feel about what's there for us as, you know, people living in the city and how it's developed. Do you think that's a landmark place? Are you proud of what we've got down there as city planner? Sure. Um, Waterfront Toronto was created in response to the mistakes of the 60s and 70s. Waterfront Toronto was all about a recognition uh, uh, by uh, Mayor Crombie and others that the waterfront needed to be a special place, a regional destination, a peopled place that was a neighborhood so that there's 24-7 activity, but also needed to continue to re respect the industrial port. Uh, the extent to which it, it still exists. So I think we are just on the cusp of beginning to see and realize the future of the waterfront and the waterfront's potential. Waterfront Toronto has focused on creating some uh, pretty spectacular public spaces as a way to incent further private sector investment in the waterfront, but we haven't yet seen the vastness of what the waterfront can be. But I think we're getting there. Um, the work that Dream has done on the West Donlands is a brilliant example of placemaking and city building. Uh, it is going to need to mature. It's in its infancy. It will get better and better and better uh, as it gets denser and as people start to make their mark and to give it some really distinct character. But I think we have the bones in our Portland planning framework in the work that's being undertaken now for Unilever, in the work that's happening not only in the, in the West Onlands proper where the Athletes Village was, but the work that's now beginning to emerge on the sites adjacent to it and how that will link to this distillery district. 
Uh, and then there's the waterfront planning right along Keating Channel. I think that we are going to see, it's, it's really work that we're all setting up for, for today, but we haven't yet seen the vastness of the opportunity and the greatness of what's going to be on our waterfront. So it's, I think it's yet to come. Yeah, I, I would concur on one point and, and disagree on another. So uh, with respect to uh, the future of the waterfront, I think it's got an extremely bright future. And I think that you know, it's actually, there's some positives that a lot of the Keating Channel, which we're partners with Dream on uh, the silo site, um, hasn't been developed yet because I think there's great things that can happen. We're thrilled about what we're doing with Moaned and Waterfront Toronto. I think one of the challenges that happens, though, is, um, you know, we all know that the, the Queen's Key extension and that transit line is kind of stuck in limbo, and we need to figure out how that's all going to work. Um, you know, we have, there's a lot of retail plan for that area with Heinz and Office that can't really work without the transit. Uh, and then when you talk about the public spaces, I like the dedication of the public spaces, but I don't like the timing of the public spaces. So by the time we finish Moaned, uh, Sherburn Common will be probably nine years old, seven to nine years old. And we'll be opening a brand new building with 500 um, 580 units, so about 1,000 residents. Tridel will be opening a couple of buildings with another 1,000 residents. So those 2,000 residents will be welcoming into their brand new parks that our project opens right onto that are 7 to 10 years old, and that infrastructure and the fountains and so on will already need to be replaced. So I think sometimes with this sort of master planning and city building, we get ahead of ourselves because that design we haven't built the buildings yet. We haven't populated the buildings yet. We don't know who's living in Waterfront Toronto yet. Let's get the residents in and living in those spaces. I'm totally supportive that we have Sherburn Common as a placeholder, but let's design the park based on what those residents want and based on what the future of that community looks like, and let's not pour money into infrastructure that by the time it's actually fully utilized, by the time the first child goes and runs around, is already almost a decade old. So I think sometimes we get our timings wrong, and I do believe that a lot of that is political in nature. So again, I'm, I wouldn't suggest necessarily it's Jennifer's responsibility, but I think it's always great to do ribbon cuttings on parks and ribbon cuttings on public spaces. But So it's a great photo op, and if you're in power, it's a good photo op for when you're in power. But if you do it too prematurely, you're really just wasting everybody's money and you're ultimately not making the city a better place. So I think we do need to work more collaboratively on the timing, and similarly with the transit. We as the private sector, there's over 20 million square feet of GFA in Waterfront Toronto and beyond, because the, the Keating Channel is not part of Waterfront Toronto, but it's still part of the district. And with 20 million square feet of development rights, we as a development community should figure out how we can work with the city to make sure that transit line comes through, because it's in all our best interest to get that Queen's Key extension. Yeah, and the transit, the transit piece isn't in limbo. It's continuing underway. It's unfortunately wasn't... Well, the funding, I meant. It wasn't limbo. started. Yeah. The funding is definitely... The f the, I meant uh, the funding. The so, funding is a yeah. big black hole, big scary, scary <laughs> yeah. black, black yeah. hole, but we're proceeding with optimism on the planning side. Yes. Well, you guys are great together. Um, I saw you on TVO, as I said. You, uh, I, I can sense a little bit of a partnership maybe for me, and you can take this on the road and you know, edu educate people around the world on, on what makes a great city. But thank you very much. I'm going to pass it back to the president. And thank uh, again, thank you so much for being with us today. That was a great panel. Thanks once again. As Gordon says, you guys uh, do very well together, and it was good to see some healthy disagreement at the end there. It started as a love fest, and then we got into some healthy debate, but thank you so much.
It's uh, my pleasure to invite Mr. Hunter Milbourne up at this time to uh, offer the official thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, I don't know about you, but I think that was one of the most fascinating, provocative, insightful conversations that I've ever heard. <laughs> so my job is to be short and sweet, so I want to thank Jennifer and Chris for taking their time to uh, give us a lot of uh, insights into the future of our city. Thanks very much. Thank you, Hunter. I'll pick up on that short and sweet theme. Just a few more thank yous before uh, we let everybody go for the afternoon. Uh, again, as a not-for-profit club, we simply couldn't host these lunches without the support of our sponsors. So a generous thank you to the Melbourne Group as our event sponsor, our supporting sponsor, Dream, and our VIP sponsor, Airden Bearless LLP. Round of applause. So please join us again soon. Our next event will be, and there was a lot of talk of transportation today, the Minister of Transportation, Mr. Stephen Del Duca, on March the 20th here at One King West. So that should be a very exciting lunch as well. Thank you very much for your attendance today, and I hope you enjoyed your time, and we'll see you next time.